Amen. So no pressure then. Because <laughs> that would be awful, wouldn't it? You know, if we're feeling we had to perform up to some <laughs> um, expectation or something like that. But um, yeah, so my name's Adam, um, if you don't know me. Um, and we're off to Australia soon. So this is what might be um, considered my final preach. Hopefully not my final preach, just my last one here for a little while. Um, and moments like this, you kind of have to give it some thought. Like, what are you going to say? Um, if you only had one more opportunity to give a message to a bunch of people you've been around a very long time, who've grown very close to your heart, what would that sermon be? Now, some of you sitting here today don't even know me. Good for you. <laughs> Honestly, there are better people to know. Um, but, but some of you I've known a long time, and um, if I wanted to give it one parting shot, what would it be? Jesus, in his final message, and I don't aspire, well, I aspire, but I don't compare myself to him, but um, Jesus, in his final message to his disciples, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, and at least I can tick that box. That's literally what we're off to do. Jesus said, go to the uttermost parts of the earth. You don't get more uttermost than Adelaide, Australia. And so we're going to Adelaide, and, um, and we'll be doing that. But um, I already preached that sermon a couple of weeks ago, so we're not doing that tonight. Paul, the apostle, in his final letter, he wrote to a man called Timothy, who was one of his young leaders, and he said to him, preach, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, because the time is coming when people with itchy ears are only going to want to listen to people who tell them what they want to hear. My paraphrase. And um, that is very good advice for preachers. And I'm going to take that advice tonight, but I'm not going to give that advice tonight. I hope that tonight I'm not going to fall into the trap of saying nice things so you have fond memories of me. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you what God's saying. And uh, you'll have to do with that what you want. So then after that, I went to John, and I mean, he's my favorite apostle. He wrote my favorite books in the Bible, and um, if you're allowed favorites, which, you know, who cares if you do. Um, so St. Jerome, writing in the 400s, he said of John, he said, when John was in extreme old age, now John was the only one of Jesus' disciples who actually lived to old age. All the others were martyred. John wasn't martyred, um, although he was boiled alive in oil, but he survived it. So you can imagine he was not in a fantastic shape. Um, and after long years of exile, he returned to Ephesus where he lived out his days there. And they would carry him to church because he was very old and very broken man, obviously. And they'd ask him to preach because he's the last of Jesus' disciples. And John refused to say anything other than little children love one another. I thought, that's, that's decent, that is. That's a good preach. But I've preached that a lot. <laughs> and if you haven't ever heard me say, little children love one another, then you clearly weren't here when I was. Um, but that is, that's an amazing message, and it's a beautiful message, and it's one that we need to hold on to. And so little children do love one another. But... Loving one another, Jesus said, is the second greatest command. But there's one that comes before it. And the one that comes before it, according to Jesus, is the greatest of all the commands. He says, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
And interestingly, the same John who said love one another also wrote, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. That's 1 John 5, 2. And so according to John, the apostle of love, my favorite apostle, um, it's not possible to be a loving person just by loving people. To be a loving person, we have to love God and obey him. Years ago, I was involved in a, something called Caring the Cape, and some of you will remember that. Terence and Loretta, fantastic folks who just poured their lives out for Jesus. Um, I remember speaking to them about the importance of weaving the gospel into everything we did because, you know, um, you can give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. You can teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. But why would you want to sell, send a man to hell with a belly full of fish? Like, if you give him the fish or if you teach him to fish, he's still just full of fish. And food is important for life. But the gospel is important for eternal life. And so if we give ourselves just to the things of this world, if we give ourselves just to loving one another and doing the things that look like love, we still haven't truly loved. Because to truly love someone, you give them the gospel. You tell them that Jesus died for them. You tell them that their sins are too terrible for them to ever stand before God and be welcomed. But the love of God is too terrible to let that situation remain as it is. And so the terrible love of God was poured out on Jesus, God's own son, who took our sin, who carried our sin and bore that sin so that we could stand before God. And we've tonight been singing about an amazing God who's life to us, who's joy to us, who's, who's strength to us, who's a shelter to us. That is not a relationship with God that we can achieve on our own because before him we cannot stand. But because of Jesus, the things we sang tonight can be true. To truly love someone is to tell them that. To truly love someone is not just to make themselves feel better about themselves. To truly love someone it's to say, no, you are the very worst of the worst. God bless you. But Jesus died for you. It's no good just sending folks to hell with a belly full of fish. Jesus said, follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. And um, yeah, food is essential for life. But the gospel is essential for eternal life. And so to prove we really love people, we must be devoted to God and obey him. Jesus said, make disciples of every nation. He said, go into all the world, preach the gospel. Jesus commanded, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's where I landed for tonight. If there's one truth I want to leave ringing in your ears, it's just that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We'll get to what all these things are in a moment. But let's first of all talk about what it is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I want to put in a disclaimer here, Philippians 3.12. I echo the words of Paul. I do not claim to have achieved this or reached my goal in this. 
Not at all. But this thing I do, I press on in this regard. And I encourage you, press on in this regard. Whatever it takes. Whatever calls to you from the world, put it aside. And seek first the kingdom of God. It is the thing. It is the only thing of any eternal worth, of any eternal value. It is the only thing to live for. And so that's what I want to talk about. So what is the kingdom? Well, a kingdom is defined as somewhere where there's a king, I guess. I come from the kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And we recently had a change of leadership there. And now there's King Charles. King Charles III. Um, if you were from the Netherlands, then you would have King Wilhelm Alexander. Uh, if you were a Zulu, you'd have um, King Mr. Zulu. So like, there's different kings, different places, different regions, different kingdoms. Kings are kings. It's kings. You know, like, they're all over the place. The kingdom of God has God. In the kingdom of God, there is no succession. This is what marks it out as different from every other kingdom in the world. As long as I'd been alive, there had been a queen in England. As long as I'd been alive, I was born on her silver jubilee, 1977. So, like, she had already been going quite a long while when I was born. And I just figured she'd live forever. And then she didn't. That's what happens with human kings and queens. But God has been going forever and will go forever. He is eternal. He outlasts us all. He remains the same, unchanged, yesterday, today, and forever. That's why he's reliable. That's why he's worthy of worship. Is King Charles worthy of worship? I don't know. Definitely not. I mean, uh, who knows? No human being is worthy of worship. They're all just fragile, broken people with their own idiosyncrasies and hang-ups. All of us need to be humble before God and recognize what we are and what we're not. We're saved by the grace of God, and that's a beautiful thing, but we're not anything outside of him. And uh, so the kings of this world must bow their knee to Jesus. And so uh, when we seek first his kingdom, what we're doing is we are seeking to engage in whatever will promote his kingship and rule and to disengage. So it's an active and a uh, sort of a, it's, a, it's an engaging and a disengaging. We're going to engage in whatever will promote his kingship and we're going to disengage from anything that comes against his authority and reign. So let's give some examples. If I love my neighbor, I am seeking first the kingdom of God. If I love my neighbor's wife while my neighbor is at work, I'm fighting against the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? Don't have to explain that. His children present. Okay, so. If I'm honest and do my work as unto the Lord, I'm seeking first the kingdom of God. If I'm flaky, only giving 60% of my effort, then I'm fighting against the kingdom of God because he says we should work with all our heart or whatever we do as if we're working for God. So this is very practical. Seeking first the kingdom of God is not always about being an evangelist. It's actually about how you live your life. If you live your life according to what God has required of you, then you're seeking his kingdom because what you're saying is, yes, boss, you are the king. But that's not in us. That's not naturally in us. We don't want that. I mean, who wants to be ruled? 
<laughs> yeah, that was the expected response. Like, like, who wants to be subjugated? Who wants to be colonized? Let's use a hectic word. Yeesh, colonization. So who wants to be brought under and made subject to a ruler? None of us. So it's not natural to have a king. It's not natural. We don't naturally bow our knee to God. It's only when there's this revelation of how very broken and needy we are that we come willingly and bow our knee to God. And everyone will bow their knee to God, some in this life from free will and choice, others in the next, broken and weeping and with no hope of ever making right. And so that, again, is why it's the love of God to tell someone the gospel. But the kingdom is more than just material things. It's not just doing what God said. Um, Romans 14 and 17 says, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not just the rules around food or what you can and can't do. Don't get drunk. All that stuff. But it's also a matter of righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God... And his righteousness, he's making two statements. He's saying, seek first the kingdom of God and seek first the righteousness of God. Because the people who live in the kingdom of God are righteous in God. They're different to other people. They're not proud of that because they're humbled by it. To be made righteous in God is to realize your absolute need of him and to give up of yourself and to give yourself to him and allow him to put something on you that you didn't earn, that you didn't deserve, that you couldn't ever get to or achieve, which is his righteousness. Later, we're going to see a baptism. Baptism is a wonderful picture of this exact thing. Um, In Romans 6, it talks about being baptized into the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so there's this picture for us in that, that the righteousness that we have is given to us by God. That when Jesus died, he takes our sin, it's buried with him, but when he comes alive, he gives us his life. And that when we're baptized, that whole picture, as you're going under, you're recognizing that you're dead with him, as you held there for a hopefully not very long, you, <laughs> you recognize that you're buried with him. And as you're brought spluttering out of the water, we recognize that we're made alive with him. And his righteousness has become our righteousness. That's an amazing thing. So what is the righteousness of God? Well, God is not righteous because he's good or kind or fair or just. God is good and kind and fair and just because he is righteous. Righteousness is not something God achieved. It's something that he is. Uncle Will would often remind us God is not righteous because he's gone out into all known realms and gathered together all of the righteousness and so now has the most. And he used this word sunum bonum. I had to, I had to look it up. But it just means the, the, the very quintessential you know, thing. So... That's not how God got to be righteous. He didn't go out there 
into all the world and find all the righteousness and claim it for himself, stab a flag on it and say, I have all the righteousness, I am the most righteous. No, he is righteous. Righteousness is his very essence. He's who he is. That's why he's always right. That's why his ways are always perfect. His ways are always just. His commands are always fair. His judgments are always what should be. Because it's the very nature of God to be righteous. It's who he is. And so he's righteous because that's who he is. And compared to him, the scriptures say, and this is maybe a little gross, but our attempts at righteousness, Isaiah 64 says, are like used menstrual cloths. It's grim. Us trying to be good is grim. It's just bad. The Bible says filthy rags in the English, but not in the Hebrew. The, 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 the things that we do that we think are good, God just looks at it and goes, Sorry, I just threw up a little bit in my mouth there, says God, looking at our righteousness. That's our righteousness. And so we need his righteousness. We need that. We need that big, big, big time. Romans 3.10 tells us no one's righteous. Not one. So how can we be righteous? If no one is righteous, how can we be righteous? Romans 5.19 tells us that through one man, we could be made righteous. Through Jesus. Because of what Jesus did, dying as he did for us, he was sinless, but he dies a sinner's death. So he became sin so that we could have our sins taken away. So we could receive his righteousness. And that's just a beautiful, amazing gift from him. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we can ask for or get because we can show how good we've been and all our merit points. That's not how it works. We just have to come humbly and say, I am not righteous. I need your righteousness. And that's when God shows his richness of his mercy to us. Like God, we do not become righteous by doing righteous things. But like God, when we're made righteous, we will do righteous things. See, God is incapable of being unrighteous. And so that's what he calls us to. He says, be holy because I'm holy. It's like, you want to be in my gang, be like me. My paraphrase. So when we're made righteous in God, he expects that will result in righteous behavior. And so when he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we're talking about a battle that begins in us to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh and to live by the Spirit in Christ's righteousness. And that can be quite a fight. I've, I've experienced that fight. Has anyone here experienced that fight? I, I experience that fight all the time. I wish I could say I don't want to sin. But honestly, I love it. And that's a real problem. Especially when you're a preacher. <laughs> like, you're meant to be good. Um, now, that doesn't say I do it. 
But I know in me there's this corrupt thing still. Even though I've been recognized in my baptism, dead with Jesus, buried with Jesus, raised alive. with. But there's this strange thing that until Jesus comes back, until we are living eternally with him forever, there's going to be this fight going on. And Paul talks about the things I hate, I end up doing. The things I want to do, I don't do. There's this wrestling. He says, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's, there's things I want to do, I don't do. There's things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Or at least my mind is going there. It's telling me I should. And actually, I want to. And I don't want to. And I want to. And I don't want to. And it is a fight. And so again, this isn't something we can do in our own strength. It's something we do by the Spirit. We have to lean heavily into Jesus for this to work. We have to acknowledge that we're not good enough. We have to acknowledge that no, we're not perfect. No, Christians are not perfect people. If you're here tonight and and you don't know Jesus and, and you don't know what this church thing is all about, let's get one thing straight for sure. Christians are not perfect people. They're probably of all people, those who recognize if they're a true Christian and not just someone who calls themselves a Christian to sound good. If they're a true Christian, if they really have given their life to Jesus, it's because they recognize this one thing. That they are utterly without merit outside of Jesus. They are utterly without any good of themselves. If you call yourself a Christian and you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. Because a Christian is someone who said, without Jesus, there is nothing about me that anyone could call good. And so sometimes the biggest obstacle to becoming a Christian is thinking you are good. Sometimes that's the, that's the thing that stands against someone becoming a Christian because they actually say, oh, no, but I'm okay. I'm quite nice. I give to charity, um, you know, all that stuff, you know. I, I never ran over any cats. I never robbed a bank. I never stole anyone's wife or husband. Or... But did you think about doing that? Did you lie? Did you steal a paperclip from work? Like, honestly, James, when he's writing, he says, if you just broke one teeny tiny part of the law, you broke the whole law. And so if you think you're good, that could be a big barrier to you accepting Jesus. Just arrive as soon as you can at this wonderful revelation. You're not good. (laughs) Really. You're not good. And that's okay because of Jesus. That's okay because of Jesus. 1 John 1, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John goes on to say in the next chapter, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father who speaks with the Father in our defense. The NIV says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And he's the propitiation He goes on to say, 
for our sin. What that means is he's the payment. He's the, the satisfaction that God received. The atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Good news, if you're not already in, there's still room. If you're here this night and you've never known what it means to have an atoning sacrifice, I'll explain that just now, for your sins. If you don't know what it means to have Jesus come and take away your sin and make you righteous, something you could never be on your own, there is still room because he's done it not just for me and not just for the people who come here every week. For you, for whoever, he's done it for the sins of the whole world. And that's because he's so good and so gracious and so kind. That's an amazing thing. So it's not that we'll never sin again. That will only happen when we're in heaven. But if we seek first the kingdom of God, we will not be seeking to sin. And that sin won't be controlling our lives. And when sin does happen, as it will, we bring it to our advocate, Jesus the righteous. And he cleanses us of that unrighteousness and our righteousness is again restored Every time our righteousness is restored. And so maybe you're here this evening and you were a Christian or you fell away from being a Christian or, or maybe you're just like, you know, not a very good Christian, whatever that means. Um, come to the advocate. Come to Jesus. Let him take away your unrighteousness. Let him give you his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. When it says all these things will be added to you, that's the context the verse is in. Jesus actually has been talking about people who worry about stuff. Anyone here worry about stuff? Just stuff. Any stuff. Jesus mentions some of the big worries that all of us have all the time. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? These are things we think about. These are things sometimes we worry about. Sometimes we worry in superficial and not very problematic kind of ways, like we're going out for dinner tonight. What are we going to eat? Other times we worry about it in very significant and meaningful ways, like I haven't been paid this month. What am I going to eat? And so we experience and we encounter these things in different ways depending who we are and our situation, but we all have these same thoughts that go through our mind. What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Again, some of us encounter it like, oh, I've got my matric ball. What am I going to wear? Some of us encounter it like, I just put a hole in my last pair of jeans. What am I going to wear? So different ones of us experience it in different ways, but we all have these thoughts. We all wonder these things. And Jesus has the answer. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says, don't worry about your life. He says, is your life not more than food? He says, well, actually, food's quite a big part of being alive. Like, statistically, most people who don't have food don't be alive. <laughs> like, that's it's a big part of being alive. Jesus says, no, but your life is more than food. We can't avoid the statistics here, but what he's saying is, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and these things will be added. You'll get your food. But seek first the kingdom. Clothes is a big part of being around people. You know, what you do in the privacy of your own home, that's between you and the Lord. But, 
But clothes is a big part of... Uh, I saw a quote the other day, I can't remember who said it, but he said, basically, no one has ever been taken seriously who wasn't ta- wearing clothes, you know? Um, I think the one exception to that would be Diogenes, who um, was an ancient Greek philosopher and is still quoted today. But with the exception of Diogenes, I think it's very unlikely you'll be taken seriously if you're not wearing clothes. And so we do think about clothes. I thought about what I'm going to wear tonight. I thought, what still fits? Um, but different people have different thoughts when it comes to clothes, you know? And, um, and we have to give this consideration, but not too much consideration, because Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added to you. And so whether that's a black T-shirt from Jet marked down to 99 Rand, or whether that's your newest Armani or whatever it was, these things will be added to you. It's all good. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's the point. God looking after you doesn't always look like financial security. I, do, I just want to sort of fill in the color on that a little. Um, and I mean, many of you know, have known us a while, and um, when our boys were very little, we often had the situation where there was too much month left at the end of the money, you know? Um, and Vanessa's often told the story of, of standing at the changing table, pulling out the last nappy, going, Jesus, this is the last nappy. Um, and, and then the doorbell ringing. And it happened more than once. The doorbell would ring, and by the time she'd sort of sort the baby out and then got to the door and opened the door, the lady from the church was already driving away, waving, and there on the doorstep was bags of nappies, provisions, the stuff we needed. We hadn't asked, we hadn't put out a call, we hadn't sent messages, um, but God knows and he provides. And time and time and time again, he's provided. He's provided homes, he's provided cars, he's provided clothes, he's provided school fees. Sometimes, though, it doesn't look like the same kind of cool miracle School fees. How does God provide school fees? For many years, the way he provided school fees was if we got a Christmas bonus, we paid the school fees in advance for the Christmas bonus instead of buying flashy presents for the kids because that way we knew there'd be better cash flow in the year ahead. Sometimes the miracle you need is wisdom and self-control. Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen up in here. Hallelujah. So... Sometimes the miracle you need is wisdom and self-control, but sometimes God provides in just, just amazing ways, and, and that's beautiful. But it, you know, Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. He doesn't give us always our bread a month in advance, not always a year in advance, not always a lifetime in advance. You, know? you pray. He wants us praying to him often. So he gives us our bread every day. And that way he knows we'll, we'll be back. <laughs> and that's okay because he's God and all his ways are right. All his ways are just. If that's how he's going to do it, that's the best way to do it. And, and so, you know, Paul wrote, I've, I've learned to be content. Whether I've got it, whether I don't got it. Plenty, a little. Hungry, full. I've learned to be content. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm not saying this because I'm all that. I'm just, I've learned to be content whatever my circumstance. It's a beautiful thing to be content. The Bible says godliness with contentment is great gain. And that's how we need to be. So 
This is where some of the faith preachers did get it a bit wrong. They, they said, you know, if God really cares about me, I'll never face need. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, my God shall supply all your needs. And so you become aware of the need, and then you become aware of the supply. Otherwise, it doesn't really count as supplying a need, does it? It's just, I never had a need in my life. <laughs> it's just privilege. <laughs> um, yeah. When you know that you have needs, then you know that God has provided. And that's a beautiful, beautiful part of the testimony of what we have these last 20 years here. God has just provided in so many ways. And now even moving overseas, God's provided in so many ways. It's just beautiful. Um, and even now, I mean, like, you know, Luke um, twelve fifteen, God says, Jesus says, uh, take care that you don't end up with this covetous heart. It's a bad thing. One's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, he says in Luke 12, 15. Your life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. And for many of you who've been following our WhatsApp group, you'll notice we're selling well, most <laughs> half, more than half of our possessions. We're selling a lot of what we've collected over the last 20 years. And one of the, the real exercises for us has been a, well, let it go, you know. Is your security in the fact that you finally got everything you wanted? I'm mean, not that we did even, but um, no, our security is in God. I'll chat to Vanessa today. She said, "No, it's a bit like she was describing it to someone like it's like when you go to the gym." And I have very little experience of that, but <laughs> she, Vanessa knows more about that than I. <laughs> she says, "It's like when you go to the gym and you think that by the end of this session you'll either vomit or be dead, but then when it's all over, you're glad you went." I think that's a great description of following Jesus. Um, anyone want to rush to the altar now and just throw themselves? I want to. <laughs> I'll sign up. No, really, because it's for the joy set before us. It's not always for the joy in the moment. It's not always that it's easy when it's happening. And I trust, like selling all the stuff that you've built up over all these years, it's not always easy. But honestly, it's not as bad as it could be. It's actually okay. Just, just get rid of the stuff and move on. Like move. Just, just do what it is God's asking you to do. Move forward. Those of you who bought our stuff, thank you. But don't hold on to it. If God tells you to move, just sell it again. Like don't be so glad you got it that now you don't move. You know, it's really important that we just keep moving. Don't be held back. Don't let things hold you back. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart is truly set on God, your treasures will be laid at his disposal. And whatever it is he's given you, you'll hold with an open hand. Again, quoting Uncle Will, he'd say, God doesn't mind what you have in your hand as long as you don't put it in your heart. You can have a yacht, you can have a fancy car, you can have a nice house. Don't ever call it your forever home. <laughs> I remember chatting to Andy and Cindy about the day they were moving out of their forever home up there. And Cindy's saying, this is our forever home. Well, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> um, there's no such thing. There is only one forever home, and Jesus has gone to prepare it for me. 
It needs to be working on it 2,000 years, and it would be nicer than anything I've lived in here. That's my only forever home. England's not my forever home. South Africa's not my forever home. Australia's not my forever home. My only forever home is in heaven. It's with Christ. It's, it's within the streets paved with gold. That is my only forever home. If we can learn, and I don't claim I've achieved this, I may cry over some of the things I have to sell. But that's okay. Because my forever home is secure eternally in glory. I'm never going to have to sell that. Never going to have to give that up. Turn around, desert it. None of that stuff. Ah, gotcha. Okay. Let's, let's come into land while we've still got our sanity. Um. <laughs> oh, yes. When we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we are storing up for ourselves treasure in heaven. Sure, in this life, you can ignore God and get rich, but you can't take it with you. And so it's a simple equation. Would you rather be rich in this life or rich in the next? Would you be rather righteous in this life (laughs) in your own mind, in your own thinking, because I'm getting by on my own good graces, on my own kindness, or to be found righteous in the next? Because you threw yourself in all humility on the grace of God and showed him that you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We heard right at the beginning, Basil said, we were created by God, through God, for God. That's why we seek first his kingdom. That's why we seek first his kingdom. Because we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. And so we honor God with our bodies. And we give ourselves to him. And so tonight, I want to create an opportunity for us to make a stand for this truth. That we would, with our lives, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Not just the kingdom of God in terms of, I will do good things and I will be a good person. But also his righteousness, recognizing I am nothing, I need his everything. His righteousness, not my righteousness. His goodness, not my goodness. And that impairing his righteousness with my investment into his kingdom, something good can come from that. And his grace and his kingdom can expand to others around me. And so you could be here this evening and maybe... You don't know Jesus. Maybe you you were a Christian once and you gave it up. Or maybe you've never had an experience where you came and you said, Jesus, be my Lord. I want to create an opportunity this evening for you to do that and to say, Jesus, be my Lord. And so I'm going to create that opportunity in just a moment. And I pray that God would be working in your heart even now, that you'd have the boldness to engage and pray with me when I give you that opportunity. For many of us here, we've already given our lives to Jesus. And so that's great. That's fantastic. Um, But maybe we're not seeking first the kingdom of God. And if anything I've said tonight has challenged you on any level, 
then I want to create an opportunity for you to respond to Jesus and to say, I want to create a course adjustment in my life. That on this day, at this time, in this place, I want to say, I'm going to seek first the kingdom of God. I'm going to seek first the righteousness that comes from God. I'm going to allow him to add to me the things I need, not pursuing them in my own strength, but rather throwing my energy into what he has called me to do and allowing him from his goodness to provide what I need. Sometimes he'll provide that through your salary. Sometimes he'll provide that through your job. I'm not saying we all give up work and become monks. But there's an opportunity here to stand and say, Jesus, I actually want to do this the right way. I want to put you first. I want to work even when I'm at work, serving my boss, who I maybe don't like or I don't agree with, but I'm going to serve him as if I was working for God. And in that way, I'm going to pursue the kingdom. And I'm going to create a testimony of Jesus in my workplace. And so I want to create an opportunity for us to do that this evening. And so I'd love us just to close our eyes, you know, um, just to close our eyes where we are. I don't want to put anyone on the spot, and it's not my intention to embarrass you, but I do want to create this opportunity. Jesus died for you so that he could take all of your attempts at righteousness, which is actually just a mess, and take it from you and give to you his true righteousness. Not righteousness that is earned or that is created from our good works, but righteousness that's given by Jesus to us because of his grace and his goodness towards us. And if you're here this evening and you say, I've never given my life to Jesus in that way. I've never understood that it's actually about me dying and him giving life to me, that I would rather give up myself and he would give me himself. And if that's something you want to do this evening, you say, I want to be someone who is living for God in that way. If that's you, then I'd love you just to raise your hand where you are so that I can see your hands and we can pray together this evening. Is there anyone you say, that's me. I want to do that tonight here in this place. Thank you, Jesus.